I'm Jamie Thomas. I'll be reading from Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, and 10, 28 through 39. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinance and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all of the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we also cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground, and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons, and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds, and our flocks, as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I ask that you would open our eyes to behold uh, just how great and wonderful your word is. The people upon first hearing it raise their hands and bow down in worship. May we in our hearts do the same this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the third Sunday of 2024. And it's our third Sunday in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is 
the right book at the right time for us as a church family as we begin this new year. We don't know what all awaits us in 2024. We don't know what opposition we'll face or what challenges will come. But we do know through Nehemiah that God continually calls his people of every age to join in a work that is bigger than themselves, to be building together something of lasting significance. Last week, we saw this in the building of a wall, which was done in a way and at a pace that the opposition was forced to come to this unsettling conclusion. God must have helped them. Remember this? God must have given them a mind to work and the resources to make the impossible happen. We saw last Sunday that a large part of having a mind to work, of engaging with gusto in God's mission, is having the right perspective. A perspective that sees the bigger picture. Remember from last week, the weary worker who only sees himself tiredly laying bricks, and the worried worker who can't see past the practicalities of building a wall. But then there was also the third worker, the one who was full of wonder because his focus was on the bigger picture. He doesn't see himself as laying bricks or as simply building a wall, but he sees himself as constructing a majestic cathedral. He sees the bigger picture. And therefore, his every contribution is a joy and a privilege as he sees his work a part of something much bigger than himself. At Alberta Baptist, we need to be a church family full of bricklayers who see the bigger picture. We need to regularly look up from the nitty-gritty of the work and see the grander vision we're working toward. We're all engaged in a kingdom work that matters here. At ABC, we're engaged in a gospel work that will bear fruit unto eternity. Forever, we will feel the ripple effects of what we are doing here. We need to see that. And that's not all we need to see. You can see the bigger picture, but let's face it, a lot of life is still lived in the nitty-gritty isn't it? A lot of life consists of small details. You can see the grand design for the church, but it also helps to see the, sp the specifics. What brick goes where? How exactly does this structure, how exactly is it supposed to look? How exactly are we supposed to respond in this particular situation? If we saw the bigger picture last week, this week we're looking at the detailed blueprints. Because it's not quite enough to have a general idea of what the cathedral you're building looks like. You also need to know a lot of specifics. You need the blueprints. You need the authorized plan. You need the detailed instructions. You need a set of blueprints that don't leave it to the worker's imagination exactly how this could cathedral ought to be put together, how it ought to look. Where do you think God's people would look to find such instructions? As builders, where do we find the blueprints for what we are building together? 
As soldiers, where do we look to find our marching orders? As a competitive sports team, where do we go to discover the unified game plan before we take the field? Where do we look to find the instruction manual for our shared life together? If you're not a Christian today, where do you look, I wonder? And where do you find people looking at the same blueprint for life as you? If you are a Christian today, I think you already know where you ought to look. We look together to a God who has spoken to us in his word. We look to the Bible, don't we? We look to the Bible. That is, we look to an objective word to guide us in our lives. In our journey through Nehemiah today, we encounter a vivid picture of the great value and importance of God's word. Where do the people of Nehemiah's and Ezra's day, where do they look to find the blueprints, to find their marching orders, to find their game plan for a shared life? They look to a book, don't they? They look to a book, a book that claims to be an objective record of God's dealing with humanity. A book that claims to be an authoritative and objective standard inspired by God. A book whose writings were so superintended by the Spirit of God that the exact words God wanted written and the exact way he wanted it said were recorded and preserved for us today. That's what is meant by divine inspiration. God so superintended the writing of the scripture that the exact words he intended to be written were written and recorded for us. The very book Ezra read aloud to the people two and a half thousand years ago sits on this pulpit and in our laps right now. If you doubt that statement, then you haven't really looked into the science of textual criticism or the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It just, it, those things prove that we have the same words Ezra had. We have the words that Ezra read to the people. The very same words that pierced their hearts are still piercing ours today as well. Here, here in the Bible, we find our blueprint, our marching orders, our unified game plan. And the first step toward knowing it, which was obvious to the people in Nehemiah's day and should be obvious to us today as well, is this. First step in knowing it is we've got to read it, right? In order to know it, we first have to read it. That's what we see first in the first of our three headings this morning, <clears throat> the reading of God's word. The reading of God's word, we see that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is what happens in Nehemiah, chapter 8, beginning verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. 
and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra, the priest, reads aloud to God's gathered people from early in the morning until midday, and the people are attentive to the word. It's like they're receiving their marching orders from high command. It's like the coach is telling the team the game plan for the big game, for the season. As Ezra reads, the people listening are forced to recognize that God has given an objective standard to his people. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. In a world that often feels bereft of objective standards, it is so very good that God has given to his people a detailed blueprint that we can all both read and understand. Imagine if we didn't have this, this blueprint. What would happen to us? In the absence of any objective standard, everything becomes subjective and relative. In the absence of an objective word grounding us, we're mostly left with wetting our finger and seeing which way the wind is blowing. Oh, it's blowing this way today. Let's go that way. Tragically, this is exactly where many people, including many mainline denominations, find themselves today. Finger in the air. Which way is the wind blowing? It makes perfect sense. Because when you give up on an objective standard, an objective word, you're only left with the subjective winds of your day and age. You're only left with the subjective whims of your political leaders and spiritual leaders. And you don't have to be coming out of a theologically liberal background to see that. There are many people from conservative backgrounds who give lip service to the Bible as their objective standard, but who functionally base their lives mostly upon very subjective standards of God-told-me-so kind of feelings. I just felt it in my spirit. I have a special word from God about what we should do. I have a special word about how I should cast my vote. There are a lot of genuine Christians who talk that way. But they often wind up getting hurt by it eventually. God is actually gracious to let them get hurt by their subjective, God told me so impressions, so that they might feel compelled to return to a vastly superior objective, thus says the Lord, standard. That's what we have in the Bible. It's like a child has to learn not to listen to their own inner voice telling them what to do, but instead listen to the voice of the parent who knows better. It's like the football team having to learn not to rely exclusively on their own innate abilities, but to listen to the coach's voice and execute the bigger game plan that his superior knowledge of the game has put together. It's like a group of builders has to not strive against one another to complete their own vision, but to strive alongside one another, fulfilling the architect's vision and working together to fulfill the original blueprint design. 
This is what we have in the Bible. The blueprints for what we are building together as a community of faith. We have in the Bible the voice of our Father lovingly disciplining and discipling his children. We have the game plan for God's team on earth. The marching orders coming down from a high command that sees the whole battlefield. We should be so very thankful that God has given us this objective word, which we should hold above all of our subjective feelings. Our thankfulness for the Bible should lead us to a first, very obvious application. Reading it. Read it. Let's read God's word. Because if we will read God's word, other life-changing responses can follow. That's what we see in Nehemiah. We've seen the reading of God's word. Now let's see the response, the response of God's people. I want to begin by looking at the most long-reaching responses of God's people, which we don't see until chapter 10. So maybe keep a finger in chapter 8, but turn over to chapter 10, and we see the first of these long-term responses, which is also our second heading, the resolving to obey. The people hear this word. What do they do? This is what they resolve. This is the first long-term response, a resolving to obey for the long-term. Look at verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. A good, far-reaching response to hearing God's word is determining to be a doer of God's word. And that's what the people are doing. We want to be not just hearers, we want to be doers of the word. The people recognize that they're hearing, what they're hearing is a special word from God. And they resolve to obey it. To obey every instruction, every command, every statute. A few examples of what those are come in the next verses. Verses 30 and 31. In verse 30, the people take an oath to walk in God's law, which includes not intermarrying with the idolatrous people around them. That had been a big factor in the nations walking away from God in the past. With even wise kings like Solomon following into that trap. As a people, they now resolve to walk down that path no longer. In verse 31, they resolve not to buy from merchants of the nations around them who come to sell their goods on the Sabbath or on any holy day. There is a rhythm of rest from work and rest from earthly gain that they resolve to bring back into their lives again in obedience to God. They resolve to observe the year of Jubilee when the land gets a rest on the seventh year from being tilled and worked, when all debts are forgiven, when a family that has sold land or effectively rented it out, often because of financial hardship, all that land, family land, returns back again to the original owners in the year of Jubilee. God gave Israel a blueprint 
for a better society. A society distinct from the nations around them. A society that was intended as a witness to the nations around them. The law of Moses told us this would be the case. Do you remember what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4? Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 4. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Israel's obeying of God's law, God's word, was always intended to lead the surrounding nations to a God explanation. Just like the building of the wall in such a short time was meant to lead the surrounding nations to say, God must have helped them. The obeying of such wise and just and righteous statues was meant to lead the surrounding nations to say, God must be with them. For what other great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord their God whenever they call on him? Or what other great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole Torah given to the people of Israel? If God is with those people, that's where I want to be. I want to be grafted in to that nation. And many people were. Many people were grafted in. Especially at those moments in history when there was a resolve in Israel to hear and obey God's word. When the public reading and the personal resolving to obey God's word wasn't present in the life of the nation, the surrounding peoples had very little occasion to see that there was anything worth following in the God of Israel. His people acted just like everyone else. They schemed and spent their money just like everyone else did. They connived and cheated in the marketplace just like everyone else. Why follow their God? Why follow their God when the product of their lives doesn't look any discernibly different than that of the pagan nations around them? Does that same criticism stick to us? I wonder. Does it stick to you? Why follow Jesus if the lives of his disciples don't look any different from that of the unbelievers around you? I hope you can see that there is a missional call at the very heart of God's people's resolve to obey God's word, to live happy, holy lives. At the very heart of that is an outward look to the nations, to the people around you. It is an attractive look. Our obedience is meant to reach out to others and draw them in to the worship and praise and love of God. That was true for Israel. 
who failed at that missional call for most all of their history up to the present day. And it is true for the church as well, who also has a history littered with many failures up to the present day. There have been many failures in church history, but there have also been many bright moments for the church of obeying God's word. Here's a bright moment. Acts chapter 2 says this of the early church, says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe at the many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church who heard God's word and resolved to obey it became a picture of the society we all want. A society filled with a sense of awe. A society where possessions and status don't matter to people. Those with any needs are freely helped because they saw that Jesus freely and sacrificially helped them at their point of greatest need. This early church was devoting themselves to hearing the word of God, to regular fellowship together, to taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. People outside the church looked in and said, I'm not entirely sure I understand what's causing this, but this is the kind of society I've always wanted. This the way they love and treat each other is what my heart has been looking for all along. That's why they had favor with all the people. Here's what people discover in the church's brightest moments and people need to discover again today. The society we all want comes in response to the word of the gospel. It comes in response to God's word, coupled with our resolve to live obediently and consistently with it. As we see in Nehemiah 10 and in Acts chapter 2, that this consistency and obedience of life will touch both our possessions and our pocketbooks. Look with me now at the rest of chapter 10. The response of God's people involves the resolving to obey, verses 28 through 31, and the restoring of tithing, the restoring of the tithe, chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. This is our third and final heading, the restoring of tithing. I'm not going to reread every verse here, but in verse 32, we see a restored obligation to contribute money to the service of God's house. In verse 33, there's the same for grain. In verse 34, there's the same for wood, for the altar, and for the sacrifices. 
In verse 35, there is the annual offering of the first fruits from every tree, every field. In verse 36, it's the firstborn of livestock. And the list goes on in verse 37. I will read verse 37. Uh, it says, We will also bring the first fruits of dough, our contributions, the first fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil, to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our God, uh, the tithe of the ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in the royal, rural towns. The priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. When the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levites shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are utensils for the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Israel had long neglected God's house. And God's work. This restoring of the tithe was a turning of the tide in that respect. The restoring of tithing was a product of their new resolve to obey God's word as they understood it. And indeed, giving a tenth of their income was what God commanded of them as a nation. But as soon as you acknowledge that fact a follow-up question quickly forms probably in most of our minds. If that's what God required of them, what has God commanded of us today? God commanded a tithe from his old covenant people. What does he require of his new covenant people? Have I got your attention? <laughs> I hope so. Because there are several things to say, and I want to say them carefully. First thing I want to say. While some Old Testament commandments are repeated and even amplified in the New Testament, you shall not murder becomes you shall not hate in your heart. You shall not commit adultery becomes you shall not look with lust. While some Old Testament commandments are repeated in the New Testament, this command to tithe a tenth of your income is not one of those repeated commands. But, second thing I want to say, this command is also not expressly done away with. Some things are expressly done away with, like the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice makes it wrong for us to sacrifice lambs and goats today. Those sacrifices were always intended to point to Christ and his sacrifice, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is no longer right for us to obey the sacrificial law or the ceremonial law about what's clean and unclean because the gospel says Jesus has come to make all things clean. His sacrifice has made all food and all people clean. To go back to the ceremonial law is to disregard the finished work of Christ. Tithing, on the other hand, isn't something the New Testament expressly does away with as only being preparatory, as only being the old covenant. If anything, the New Testament 
takes it in the other direction. This is the third thing I want to say about tithing. The New Testament paradigm shift doesn't pull back on tithing, but it really seems to ramp it up to 11, doesn't it? The early church is actively selling their possessions and providing for the needy. Like they don't have a care about tomorrow. Because they know all their tomorrows are in Jesus' hands. Their motivation to give flows from following the one who was rich, but who became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Might become eternally rich. In our joy over this great treasure that we found in Jesus, people were just selling Selling all that they had, selling what they had, giving it to advance his kingdom. They were trading in their earthly treasures for heavenly ones. So, the New Testament example doesn't follow behind Old Testament tithing. It actually goes light years ahead, doesn't it? It's light years ahead because there is so much more motivation here than just having a law to give. The motivation is so much greater. New Testament believers are responding to more of God's word. They're responding to more revelation about Christ. We're responding to a gospel that should propel us to outgive and be more generous than God's old covenant people were ever motivated to be. The command of tithing isn't repeated in the New Testament, but the model and motivation the New Testament gives us is far superior to what we get for tithing in the Old Testament. I think of the Old Testament sometimes like a wise father giving rules to a child. A child who is way too young to understand all the reasons why. You don't need to do this. Why? You're too little to understand just yet. You just need to trust me. You also need to do this. Why? You'll understand one day. Just trust me for now. As children, we begin life under an age of law, don't we? We're told not to touch the stovetop, and we can't understand why. We're told not to run around in the parking lot because we can't see the danger. But if we listen and obey, we get to live long enough to grow up into an age of grace. You need to give, the Old Testament says. God doesn't need your tithe, but you need to give. You need to give, child, and eventually I'll tell you why. In the New Testament, we've grown to the point that we're told why in statements like this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure." of a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God doesn't need your money for his plans to prosper. God doesn't need your tithe. It's you who need to give. You need to give so that money loses its grip on you. So that your possessions forfeit their tyrannical rule over your heart. You need to give so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. You've grown now, our Father says, beyond my commandment of a tenth, beyond my requiring a tithe of you. I only gave you a law before for your good, and I didn't tell you why. But I'll tell you why now. It isn't for me. It's for you. It's for your sake I ask you to give. It's to decrease the world's hold on you and increase heaven's hold on your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's so that you might make the wise exchange, giving up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. So, the question for us isn't, are we as New Testament believers commanded as a law to tithe? But seeing the heart of the law, the question is, how much are we going to lean into it, excelling and exceeding the law? How rich toward God do we really want to be? How much do we want to invest in God's kingdom? How free from the love of money do we want to make ourselves? How faithfully do we want to reflect to others God's lavish generosity to us? In other words... How well are we going to do? These are the questions New Testament believers should be asking. And they all run far ahead of the Old Testament questions about tithing. These are the questions you should be asking. Husbands asking wives. Wives asking husbands. Single people asking themselves. You got an easy single person. You get to make all your financial decisions on your own. But as a married couple, you need to sit down and ask each other, how well are we going to do? As a single person, ask, how much do I want to invest what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose? I see giving in God's blueprint for life. I see it there. It's there. Giving is there in God's blueprint how much am I going to lean into his design and trust him? I see tithing and gladly going beyond a tithe is crucial in God's game plan for his people. How much am I going to trust the coach that this is the way to victory? I see that sacrificial giving is part of God's battle plan for advancing his kingdom and confounding the enemy, how faithfully am I going to follow those marching orders from high command? 
These would all be great questions to end on. And I was tempted to end here. But the note I most want to end on is this. Flip with me back to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 12, which haven't been read yet this morning, but you need to hear. Look at verse 9. This is, we've talked about the long-term response in chapter 10. This is the immediate response to hearing the word. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. You might also feel like weeping and mourning in response to God's word today. God's word reveals our unfaithfulness, doesn't it? God's requirements pinpoint our selfishness. Suddenly hearing God's call for a tithe can hit you like a gut punch with all the pains of your past failures. Reflecting on where your money goes can make you feel foolish and sad. So much that could have been invested in things that matter have gone to things that don't. Maybe weeping and mourning is your first response to the opening of God's word this morning. But that's not where I want you to be. And that's not where God wants you to stay. Look at the rest of verse 9. Or verse 9, all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Here is the response of really getting it. Here's the response of real understanding. Here's the response God is really calling for. It's a response of joy. A response of joy that's so expansive that generosity just flows out of you naturally. Like Ebenezer Scrooge getting up on Christmas morning. Go, lad, buy the biggest turkey. Send it to the Cratchits. Right? It's, it's that, that, that response. Joy is such a big thing that generosity becomes so natural. This joy over God's word eats and drinks and celebrates. This joy generously envelops and welcomes in those without who are on the outside. This joy over rightly understanding the gospel word that has been made known to you becomes unexpectedly lavish in its praise for the Lord and in its giving to the Lord. This joy propels you, propels you to give. This is the joy which propels you to tithe and go past tithing. 
This is the joy of the bricklayer who sees the bigger picture. All the work, all the resources, all the effort are as nothing to the bricklayer because he understands what he's contributing to. His every contribution to building this cathedral is done in joy because he sees the bigger picture and because he knows his contribution follows God's blueprint, a blueprint that includes our long-term obedience and our joyful giving in response to God's word. Heavenly Father, may you write this word upon our hearts. And if our initial response is one of sorrow and grief, transform it in this moment to one of joy. May we hear of your great generosity toward us in the Lord Jesus. He who was rich became poor for us. May we in our joy over having discovered this great treasure in him, all the riches that are in Christ, may we in our great joy reflect your lavishness to others. May we desire to invest more and more of ourselves in your great kingdom work. May we give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Lord, make us wise in this. Make us joyful in this. May duty not motivate us like joy will motivate us in giving of ourselves for your cause, for the cause of Christ. We pray this and ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.